Just so you know before we begin, this episode of Untold Killing contains descriptions of violence and adult themes. Please use discretion. In the years after the Bosnian War ended, Ed went back to Priyadur several times to do more reporting. He remembers one of those trips in the winter of 1996, when the weather in Priyadur was the complete opposite of the relentless summer heat from his first time there. It was about minus 15, minus 20. There was ice on the ground. It was terrifying. And we went to um, a bar right by the camp. And it was clear that actually anyone in that bar in 1992 would have seen the prisoners coming in and coming out and the bodies going out even maybe. I mean, in the decades that have followed, you realise that Bosnia is one big bloody mass grave. There was one called Tomasica, a stone's throw from, from where we were, with 300-odd cadavers in it. Now, this stuff needs moving around. The Srebrenica massacre, there were primary, secondary and tertiary graves. The byways around Priador and around Srebrenica were heaving with trucks full of human remains for years afterwards, and yet nobody said a word. I had this very straightforward question at the end of the last episode. How does something like the Priador concentration camps happen? How did the guards end up willingly committing such violent crimes? Doing that to people they knew, who they lived alongside happily for decades. One really important aspect of that dark journey is that you surrender your individualism, that you become part of a group. And that group is a group that believes in threats, real or imagined, and is doing something necessary for the survival of the group. For ordinary people to commit crimes like this, they have to relinquish their individuality. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. I think that for his students, Kenneth Morrison must be that one lecturer who just has a gift of making the most complex issues really fun to learn about. He's an expert on Yugoslav history. I've been engaged in the region one way or another for for over 20 years now, and I teach a class at the university on Yugoslav, post-Yugoslav history. According to Kenneth, the answer to my question about how a society gets to the scary place that Priyadur got to in 1992 is connected to the politics of Bosnia's early days. I'm convinced to this day that this is a conflict that had to be engineered. People had lived together, had gone to school together, had uh, friends that were of different uh, ethnic groups, different religions, celebrated each other's religious holidays. Earlier this series, Sadko told me about how the local branch of the Bosnian Serb party, the SDS, achieved a complete takeover of the Priyadur municipality. But from what Kenneth tells me, this wasn't just an isolated event. This had been planned for a long time. From the SDS main board, it was one of the many well-planned steps in Radovan Karadzic's party's strategy for creating an ethnically cleansed Republika Srpska. 
So the main board of the SDS were basically giving instructions to the local SDS, the municipality branches of the SDS. And each leader of that municipal branch would be responsible for creating certain conditions within their municipalities. According to the ICTY, the war tribunal set up to prosecute crimes committed during the Yugoslav Wars, in 1991, before Bosnia even became independent from Yugoslavia, the main SDS board issued a set of instructions to all its local branches. And those instructions outlined, step by step, what exactly the local Bosnian Serb leadership should do to gain control over their municipality. One of those steps was declaring separate Bosnian Serb local governments with shadow Bosnian Serb leadership, in secret at first, and then to take complete power. But remember, in Priedor, SDS weren't the biggest party, and so they had to carefully create conditions for a takeover to be possible. You need the support uh, of the people to be able to, to do so. So certain mechanisms are used, not only to divide the ethnic groups in Priedor, but to convince the Serbs that they are essentially threatened uh, by their neighbours. Kenneth told me that one of those mechanisms was propaganda, just like Satko remembered in episode two. They understood it was necessary to meet their political objectives, which was essentially to create a purely or predominantly uh, ethnic Serb entity out of part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. For example, paramilitary units from Serbia, the country, seized the TV transmitter near Kozarats. The satellite dish was moved so that it could only receive signals from Belgrade, from Radio Television Serbia. Again, back in episode two, Satko spoke about all the anti-Muslim and Croat stories being spread around that time, mainly through the local newspaper and radio. The ethnic cleansing, if you like, of Priador was made possible through the use of uh, that propaganda. To do this, Kenneth says the SDS had to gain control of different institutions and media well before any takeover could happen. So there had to be a kind of slow process of getting your people into the key positions. Once they are in key positions, you then start to put pressure uh, on others to, to force them out, essentially. So all of those institutions, Radio Priador, Kozarski Vjesnik, uh, many of the local factories, uh, mines, uh, were essentially taken over by SDS people in, in 1991. But gaining control over a town or municipality on its own didn't get Karadzic's SDS a Serb-only state. It just got them the resources to create one. To do that, Republika Srpska decided to use different tools, like military aggression, deportations, killings and concentration camps, among other things. And to get the local Serbs to a place where they were willing to go along with those things, Kenneth says that all non-Serbs had to be dehumanised in the Serb population's eyes. So that process of dehumanisation intensifies absolutely after the takeover of April 29th and 30th at 1992. Once you've dehumanised individuals, anything is permissible. And that's essentially what happened in Priador. It seems to me that Everything that was done in Priador from 1991 was building towards this point. The firings. If the boss was a Serb connected to the SDS, you had this process going on throughout 1991 where uh, Bosniaks were slowly being fired from their jobs. The white armbands non-Serbs had to wear in Priador to identify themselves when leaving their homes. 
So they are, are being further ostracized. And that ostracization actually is part of the process that leads to the massacres taking place. You're dehumanizing them. The relentless propaganda demonizing non-Serbs. There was a kind of intention to create a psychosis in which people believed that all of those dark ghosts from the Second World War were re-emerging again. This was all part of the same process, which took months of slowly intensifying steps to get to a point where the local Serbs started viewing their non-Serb neighbours as the other, as someone to be afraid of, as the anti-Serb fascist regime from the Second World War coming back to life. Once you get to the position where you no longer see the other as human, then of course, that's when genocide becomes possible. And I think this is the answer to the question that got us talking to Kenneth. This is how the depravity of the camps could happen. Dehumanisation. They can't wash. Uh, they're being fed you know, pitiful bowls of, of watery soup. They're being marched out of their pens, essentially, and being beaten uh, on the way to where they're fed. Of course, people couldn't go to the toilet. They couldn't urinate. Sometimes they were having to defecate in the actual place where they, they were sat, where they would lie. The torture took place uh, inside places like Omarska, or I think to a lesser extent, Tornopolje, but certainly in Omarska, because the, the local Serbs no longer saw these people as humans. But Kenneth thinks that the violence didn't happen just because things got tragically out of hand inside the camps. Despite what Karadzic and the other Bosnian Serb leaders claim, he believes it was their plan all along. The kind of violence that was used, it was intentional. Because the ultimate objective was to create mono-ethnic territories. The objective was, essentially, that these people could never live with each other again, that trust would be so completely broken that you could never build a, a multi-ethnic society again. Um, so the level of violence had to be so severe, had to be so frightening, so disturbing, that people couldn't possibly live together again. And sadly, in a way that's been successful, people are much more easily manipulated than they believe themselves to be. We all believe that this could never happen to us, that this is something that happens to other people who are somehow less sophisticated than we are. But the power of propaganda, the power of fear, of manipulation, is something that I think is uh, underestimated. We all underestimate it, but uh, you know, all of the evidence in places like Bosnia or you know, Rwanda tells us otherwise. Relatively sophisticated people, so-called, end up doing terrible things on the basis that they were uh, scared, they were frightened, they were convinced that there was a need to do it to save themselves. Prijedor is, of course, a very specific place with a very specific society and history, Kenneth says. The situation was extremely complex, and we're only focusing on a small part of the Bosnian war here. But sadly, similar tactics were used all across former Yugoslavia. And we wanted to know whether Kenneth thinks the same kind of thing could be done in other places, even today. The process that we're talking about in Priador with the, the manipulation of people is, of course, something that can be done elsewhere. Humans are humans, whatever they are, <laughs> whether they're in Priador or uh, Phuket or, or Sydney or London. 
Ed Vuliami was also curious about those responsible for the camps. Although he focused specifically on the men that were in charge, the local Priador SDS leadership. In his book, he calls them the middle managers of genocide. Obviously, after three years of reporting this, to no avail whatsoever, you know, you start to think, how does this happen? Who does it? Who are these people? And so, on one of his trips back to Priador after the war, he tried to track them down and talk to them. Some of them refused to meet, but some, like Stakic, for example, the man who was leader of the SDS in Priador in 92, spoke with him. Very menacing. He actually said at one point, it's very brave of you to be out here this late. But the dramatic conversation was with the, the big, um, verbose bear of a man, Kovacevic, the deputy mayor. This man, Kovacevic, was the second in command in Priedor. He was one of the Serb officials shepherding Ed's and the journalist's visit back in 1992. But in 1996, he was the director of the local Priedor hospital. We went there at nine o'clock in the morning, and there was this extraordinary hour or two with him. He drank his way through most of a bottle of plum brandy, Sliwovica, and gave us this kind of haunted confession. Oh, everything was cracking in our heads around here. This was one for the psychiatrists, you know. The, it was an extraordinary interview. I mean, he didn't sort of say, I did it, but he came damn close to saying that. And uh, he, he was uh, a haunted man and a crazy man. I think he just thought, oh, here's a couple of pesky journalists. It's nine in the morning, I'm trying to run a hospital. As the Irish say so so wisely, you know, it was the drinking him talking. I think he just we got him at a moment of not exactly remorse, but of sort of haunted confrontation with himself. Out of the middle managers that Ed spoke to, Kovacevic was the only one who showed any sort of awareness of what he was responsible for. Despite that... A few years later, when he was, you know, in court in The Hague being represented by lawyers, of course, he denied everything he said, he denied everything he did. But I think he had a moment that morning. Uh, he was a religious man. I think he might have been worried that he was going to hell. Who knows? Who knows what's going through the minds of these people? But he kept talking about this wind blowing through. You know, this was for the, everything was cracking in our heads. Now, let's pause there for a moment and let's jump back in the timeline again to three and a half years before Ed spoke to Kovacevic, back to the end of July 1992 just after Karadzic's denial of the concentration camp's existence on the news, when Ed was just getting ready to go to Priedor to investigate them. At that point in Omarska, Satko started noticing something strange happening. It became very obvious in the first week of August. He remembers that the Serbs would regularly line up all the detainees of Omarska outside and read out their names from a list, trying to keep things organised. And sometimes... Some names on these lists were of people who were already killed. Simply, they didn't know. They were losing track of who they'd already tortured and killed. But the most um, visible it became when we realized that the camps are discovered. Sadko says that he found out the world knew about them thanks to his dad. He used to listen to a radio that one of the detainees was allowed to keep. And towards the end of July, they mentioned reports of the camps on the news for the first time. Satko's dad started telling everyone they'd been found. And then all of a sudden, we realized something's changing, something's going on. Satko remembers the camp guards spending the next two days reading out a list of all the detainees' names again, while all of them were lined up outside. They would actually 
mark who is still in the camp and which which room, which premises. In my memory, it was between 2 and 4th of August. And this is the moment when I realized that so many people on these lists are gone. Once the camp reports started circulating in world media and the leader of Republika Srpska, Radovan Karadzic, invited journalists to investigate them, Serbs began to move many of the detainees around between camps, preparing for the journalists' visit. Satko remembers the Omarska men being split into two different groups, one that would be transported to a camp called Manjica and one to Ternopolje. Satko also thinks that the date of 5th of August for the journalists to visit the camps was chosen well ahead of time. To get rid and to transport over 2,000 people in the wartime, uh, when there was a lack of everything, a lack of fuel, lack of drivers, lack of buses, it took them some time also to organize logistically all of this. They needed enough time to move the detainees. But since Ed and the others came to Bosnia straight after Karadzic's ITN interview at the end of July, the Serbs had to keep delaying them. They were basically playing for time, I now know, while they emptied out Omarska. The Serbs were making arrangements for the journalist's visit until the very last moment. We didn't know that the crew would visit, but we could sense that someone was visiting because of what was happening in the concentration camp. No one told us what would happen. The concentration camp was being cleaned and organised, which signalled to us that someone was visiting. I was one of the women who washed the windows in the cafeteria. We were cleaning until we were stopped by the deputy of the concentration camp. He told us to get ready. To get ready? What were we getting ready for? We didn't have anything. We were told to stand on the side and that women whose names are called will board a bus. And that's what happened. Someone asked about where we were going. He said most likely to Nopoli. Azra, one of the Ternopoli medical team, remembers the women from Omarska arriving to the concentration camp early in the morning. And she testified in court that a little later that same day, several busloads of detainees from another camp were brought to Ternopoli as well, from Kerateram. They all were in terrible condition. They all lost a lot of weight. They clearly were afraid more than we were in Ternopoli. Azra also remembers hearing stories from the Keraterm detainees about a massacre that happened there. They were wondering if any of the men who were shot during the massacre ended up at the Ternopoli Medical Center. However, we never got any wounded person from Keraterm and we never took care of any of them. Later, after the war, we learned that they all actually were killed and uh, ended up in a mass grave. And then Azra recalls another strange moment from that day. At one point, she overheard two of the Ternopoli guards talking to each other. 
we heard guard uh, cursing and saying they are not coming to Kerater. They are coming here. What do we do now? And we realized that something is happening. Someone is coming to Ternopolje and someone who planned to be coming to Keraterm. Since we heard about how they actually cleaned Keraterm and how the prisoners from Keraterm who came to Ternopolje explained to us that the last group of prisoners from Keraterm was asked to clean, actually to scrub the warehouses in Keraterm and really kind of like make it clean and tidy, uh, we realized that they were really preparing for someone's visits and they were trying to to show that there was nothing there. From what Azra is saying, it seems that the Serbs' original plan was to bring the journalists first to Omarska, which was cleaned by the women and emptied of many of the detainees, and then to Keraterm, which was apparently also cleaned. But things don't seem to have gone according to plan, or maybe they were disorganized. At any rate, by bringing prisoners from Keraterm, they actually caused a very chaotic situation in Ternopolje, even worse than it was before, because all of a sudden we had a thousand people more there who were just outside under clear sky. And once I realized that probably someone is coming to Ternopolje, we started spreading the word around. Someone might be coming. You better find a way to tell them what is happening here. The survivors' memories of the journalist's visit to the concentration camps is coming up after a quick break. In the morning of the 5th of August, the journalists set off from Priedor to Omarska. There is a battle on the way and uh, gunfire is coming over our vehicle. And we are told the Mujahideen gunmen are in the woods. It's not safe. This was ridiculous. I mean, the, how, come all the, how come the Mujahideen are firing a good 20 feet above our heads? And we actually were quite sort of gung-ho about it. So this is ridiculous. I'm sorry. This is clearly a prank. You know, can we, can we get on with the day's work, please? I really remember this shooting. I remember the, the sounds of uh, Kalashnikovs, of, of, of gunfire. Not very close to us, but close enough to hear it. Sadko says he spent the entirety of the journalist's visit packed into a hangar. The hangar. So that you cannot see the... I just said that so that anyone can see it. The Red Cross can come and now they're stopping us here. Alongside all the other detainees, out of sight. I did not have any visual whatsoever with the journalists. I only heard after they left that journalists were seen. He says only a few of the men were allowed to leave the hangar and get their food the ones that ended up being filmed in the canteen. It was all one big scene. I mean, this was the first time when they got enough time to eat. Nobody was beating, nobody was screaming. There was more food in the plates. There was more bread. And uh, maybe the most important moment of this day was when Jamal Paratusic was interviewed, who was actually recorded by, by ITN television. He said to add, meaning, I do not want to tell you any lies, but I cannot tell the truth. He put his life at risk because the guards were all around. But I think he, he got lucky that they simply could not touch them or did not want to touch them at that moment in front of the camera. So once they ran back to Hangar, he simply could disappear among 2,000 of us. Then they moved to Ternopoli. Of course, we didn't know this. As we approached Ternopoli, we passed the extraordinary site, 
of a group of men standing behind a barbed wire fence, again in various states of decay. I don't think we were supposed to meet those people. I certainly don't think we were supposed to film them and interview them as we did. You might recall from our first episode that Ed remembers one man behind the barbed wire standing out. Who was just a ribcage on legs. His name was Fikret Alic. Uh, he became almost a sort of icon of the early years of the war. I can't exactly recall, but it happened around 1 or 2, maybe even 2.30 in the afternoon, about an hour after we were left there behind the barbed wire. Some people started to run towards us with a massive device. I didn't even know they were microphones. They were all running towards us, and we thought they were going to kill us. This, as you may have guessed, is Fikret Alic. The man from the barbed wire from the Ternopolye concentration camp. Fikret is also from Kozaretz, like Satko, and after the town was attacked at the end of May, he managed to stay hidden in the woods until the 14th of July, for more than a month. That's when his group were surrounded by the Serb army and taken to Kedaterm concentration camp. We haven't heard from a Kedaterm survivor yet, and so I wanted to talk to Fikret about his experiences. As soon as he arrived there, he was beaten for two hours by a camp guard from Kozaretz, who had been his neighbour since they were little kids. It was a clear sign of how things were going to be at the camp. During the first night, they were drinking and beating people. Later that first night, Fikret says his old neighbour called him and some other men outside to beat them again. He immediately knocked out two of my teeth with his boot and ordered me to graze the grass. I told him that I couldn't because my nose was in the way, and he said that it won't be. He turned me around on the concrete and pressed my head on it. He kicked my head with his boot and flattened my nose. He said, neighbour, try now. It won't be in your way. The next day, things continued in the same vein. I was beaten with a rifle, punches, a baton, and more. I was already covered in blood on the first day in Keratem. From what the ICTY say, the conditions in Keratem were similar to those in Omarska. There were more than a thousand detainees. Men were interrogated, beaten daily, and many executed. Even the food situation was almost the same. A small portion of stew and two slices of bread once a day. From his arrest in July until he was taken to Ternopolia in early August, that was Fikret's life. Could you comprehend the intensity of how your life had changed? Well, there was nothing to comprehend. There was only fear. There was no comprehension. In that fear, there was only a chance to survive or to die. I joked once in the concentration camp while they were beating me in the head with a steel ball, from which I still have side effects to this day. I asked, why don't you kill us? They said that our lives weren't worth a bullet. Just before his transfer to Ternopolia, something out of the ordinary happened, even by Keratelem standards. Something that Fikret wanted to tell the British journalists about. This man, Alic, talked about a massacre of 150 men in one day at that camp. 
The story that Fikret told Ed and the others that day, and which he told me in our interview, is usually talked about as the Room 3 massacre. If the story Satko told at the end of the last episode showed the depravity of the violence in the camps, the Room 3 massacre shows the scale of it. More than 100 men were killed in one go. Fikret thinks the guards, one of them being that childhood neighbour of his, had planned the massacre for days. There were four different rooms at Keratem, and Fikret lived in room three. But one day... I was moved from there three days before they brought people in from Hambarine to kill them. An ICTY document describes the entire massacre. A new group of detainees were brought into Keratem from the area around Hambarine. They were all put in room three from which the other detainees had just been moved. For some reason, these detainees were being treated differently from the others. They kept the whole room without food, water or anything for three days. During the third day, they had tables set up with machine guns. According to the ICTY, who spoke to several witnesses about the massacre, the armed Serb guards and soldiers brought in a machine gun and set it up on a table in front of room three. The witnesses testified about hearing bursts of gunfire that night, as well as moaning from the men inside. They massacred those people. They killed them like cattle. As for our rooms, they made us sing while they were killing them. We had to sing Serb songs. No one has what the Serbs have, the glory of Holy Slav and so on. After the massacre, in the morning, they came into our room and ordered five of us to load those that were killed. A truck came and those people were loaded like cattle. Four men like bags, one on top of the other. They loaded everyone, those that were alive, wounded and killed. They loaded all of them from the dormitory into the truck and took them towards Tomashitsa. There was a trail, a bloody trail, because blood was pouring out of the truck. Everyone watched. The whole of Priedor saw the blood as they drove. But, apparently, no one knew what was happening. Fikret remembers not being able to do as he was told, to load the bodies. He was really weak from the beatings. Another man volunteered in his place. From what Fikret said, this man probably saved him from retribution for refusing to cooperate. How long were you at Keraterm after the massacre? The massacre happened on the 24th of July, and we were there until the 5th of August, until they transferred us to Ternapolia. They hoarded us into the buses like cattle, four buses and two trucks. And then we were in front of Ternopolia, and we were told that was our stop. They unloaded us there, and we were surrounded by barbed wire. We weren't allowed to have any contact with the other concentration camp detainees. We were isolated. On that day when we were transferred, the journalists came. A miracle upon a miracle. I can't exactly recall, but it happened around 1 or 2, maybe even 2.30 in the afternoon, about an hour after we were left there behind the barbed wire. 
This is how Fikret Alic ended up being behind that barbed wire on the 5th of August 1992, about to become an icon of the early years of the war, as Ed called him. All of a sudden, someone spoke in a foreign language. There was an interpreter who said, don't be afraid, we are journalists. But the Serbs were around the journalists. I tried to be part of the mass of people. I didn't succeed. I was turned around, and that's how the cursed photo was taken. She told me, hello, and I said, hello, and extended my hand. I greeted her over the barbed wire. They asked us for our names and last names, and what happened. If the massacre happened here or where. I managed to say that they transferred us from Keratem, and that my name is Fikret Alic, that it would be best if they could see Keratem and the trail of blood, because the blood was there. But as was the case back in Omarska with the men in the canteen, talking to the journalists made Fikret afraid. While we tried to talk to the journalists, we heard a soldier say, write their names down and everything that was said, because once they leave, it will not go well for them. Fikret remembers that later, after Ed and the others had left, the guard who used to be his neighbour actually killed one of the other men who spoke to the journalists that day. Fikret says that many other detainees who were captured on camera were also killed. After the journalists interviewed the men behind the barbed wire fence, they went inside Ternopoli and they got to talk to one of the doctors, Idris Merdjanic, and his colleague, Azra Blazovic. I don't know if they asked for that or they wanted to show them that they have even a medical care for prisoners there. And they asked us what kind of injuries we see there. And we started a kind of like, a, well, the people have toothaches and diarrheas. And, and they asked us, and do you see any beatings? And then we just kind of look at each other's and roll the eyes and stop there. And they realized that we will not talk, that we cannot talk. That's because there was a Serb man in the room escorting the journalists, someone called Mica. Azra says he was from the Serb Red Cross and that he'd visited the clinic in Ternopoli several times over the summer, never actually helping them. And so Ed and Penny asked this Mica to leave the room. We used that short situation to tell them everything was happening there, beatings, killings, everything, but... We try to make sure to tell them you have to go to Omarska. Omarska is worse. We are okay. We are better. And then we said that we cannot talk anymore. And they opened the room and told Micha they won't talk to us. And he said, of course, they don't have anything to tell you. During that brief moment, without a Serb presence, Azra also managed to slip Penny Marshall one of the few definitive proofs of the violence in the camps that came out of the journalist's visit. We kept record of every single visit that was coming to Ternopoli. When did you s- decide to start taking photographs? Oh, camera was actually my camera that I had in my backpack in Kozarats. It came with me in that same backpack to Ternopoli. And at some point I showed it to Idris and I said, I have that, we, we probably can use it at some point. And that's what we did. Uh, once the beating 
took place and we saw the, the, the bloody room that was left after the beating. We saw how people looked like after the beating. Uh, we saw the, the people who lost so much weight that they look almost like a skeletons. We decided we have to document some of it. I'm not sure if Azra was expecting the camera to actually have the impact that it did, but she went to great lengths to document what was happening at Ternopoli. It was not difficult to take a picture, but if anyone finds a picture and know who took it, that would be a death sentence. So it was really very difficult to take anything because you didn't want person to know that you took a picture and you wanted to take a picture in a manner that if they find it, they will not know still who took a picture. And when she found herself alone in a room with the two British journalists, Azra says she instinctively trusted them. We realized that it was our lifeline. That's it. That's our chance to kind of get people to know really what was happening here to the point that I went and got the, the camera from the place that, we, that I was hiding it, brought it and gave it to Penny Marshall. And I remember her trying to open a camera and take the film out. And I kind of in a panic was just like a dumping it on her and kind of waving hands and saying, no, 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 just, just take it. And she actually really took the camera and put it inside of her bulletproof vest that she was wearing on that day. Ed says that the photos helped clearly establish the beatings that were happening at Ternopoli. It was hard evidence. As for Azra, she believes the journalists changed everything. All of a sudden, we became names, we became people. Someone was responsible for us. It was out there that there were people who exist in prisoner camps, and there are people who are in command of it. And what was it like seeing people being finally released and the world paying attention to everything you'd been through? Uh, I don't know. We knew at that time that Ternopoli, that our place at that time was a black hole in the world. We almost didn't exist at that time. And we always begged people, refugees, the convoys who were deported toward central Bosnia, please make sure to tell someone what's happening here. However, we never knew if anyone actually knew what was happening here, if anyone who mattered knew what was happening here. Of course, the other famous photograph that came out of that day was Fikret's. I never really thought about the photo. When I saw myself, I couldn't believe that a man can go from 86 kilos to 45 and to survive all of the torture. The only thing that I thought was to thank Allah that I was alive, so that I could tell my story for future generations, so that this evil that we survived never happens to anyone again. Fikret to me seemed like a very pragmatic and reserved man. But Ed has since become friends with him, and he's seen a different side to Fikret. He was in a terrible state for some 15 years. Uh, who who would be friends with a man who talks only to trees, he once said to me, and then is now 
you know, a, a man of great humor and resilience and wit. I asked him how he survived, and he said, I survived because I am a man who can laugh. It's a very good answer. Of course, Ed's spoken to Figlet about the photo as well, which was actually only a still from one of the ITN TV cameras, since, for whatever reason, no one had a proper photography camera with them. A photographer friend of mine said to me, Ed, do you ever carry a camera? I said, well, no, I don't. I carry a notebook and a pen. He said, if you'd have taken one Boots disposable camera shot of that guy behind the barbed wire fence, you'd have made 40 million in 48 hours. <laughs> My dad said to me, Ed, would you really want to be the man who made 40 million out of that terrible image of suffering? To which Figure said, no, no problem. He said, you, you, give, you give 1 million to charity, 39 million to me. <laughs> Why do you think that specific image made such an impact around the world? I think two reasons. One, this is in the heart of Europe, but unavoidably because of the echo at the sight of a skeleton man behind barbed wire in the heart of Europe. Subliminally, people thought, hang on a minute, this belongs to another time, not yesterday. After the journalist's visit, the camp started closing one by one over the next few months. In some, the atrocities continued, in others, conditions improved while the survivors stayed detained for many more months, after which all of them had to find their way towards a life again. But if there is something I've learned, even just from the experience of my own family, then it's that war doesn't just go away. It stays with you for life. So next time, and on the final episode of this series of Untold Killing, I hear from the survivors about their journeys from the camps to where they are today. I really tried to build up my life to do something, but inside I was really broken and I was completely traumatized. I could not be happy for years. And also, after my producer Jake Tajovic had done some digging, I'll try to understand how much the British government actually knew about the Pleador camps throughout the summer of 1992. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written and produced by Jake Atayevich. Thank you to Elmina Kulisic, Kate Williams and Amra Mukanovic from Remembering Srebrenica for helping us put this series together. A special thanks to the Bosnian-American Genocide Institute and Education Centre for their partnership and support in fundraising, as well as Isla Delkic. And also thank you to Susie Cleverly for being the voice of Nusreta Sivets and to Dan Damon, who was the voice of Fikrit Alic. Editing, mixing and sound design by Rowan Bishop. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Matt Huxley. And my name is Alexandra Bilic.